in the book of Habakkuk. Whoa. And I know that's going to take you a little while to find that. So it's in the Old Testament, and it's on page 888 in my Bible. So while you're looking for it, happy birthday, Larry. (laughs) Habakkuk chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore, justice comes out perverted. We'll pray. Lord, um, these are not happy verses. And we can, can understand the prophet's cry, and we often have the same cry ourselves, Lord. That we want to see you act in this world and make things right. And yet, we're here and we're waiting. And so I pray, God, that you would just um, strengthen our faith our trust in you, and that we would rightly understand you and your ways as we wait on you. Thank you for your word, and again, God, I pray that you would minister to us as you know we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to spend the next um, three Sundays here in this little book of Habakkuk. Um, I thought about working through all the minor prophets. I don't think I'm going to do that. Tom did that not long ago in the adult Sunday school class. Um, Years ago, I think it was my first year to teach at His Hill, my assignment was all the minor prophets, and um, my very first semester there. And at the end of it, as the students did evaluations and all the teachers, their evaluation about me was, he is a negative guy. (laughs) I thought... Well, I, I, I guess I taught those prophets correctly. Um, can these are, they are not happy books. They are pretty negative. Uh, you don't go to the minor prophets for encouragement. You go to the Psalms, maybe, but not typically the minor prophets. There are usually messages that are messages of impending judgment, messages that we need to repent um, in order to... to forestall or um, avoid that judgment. Though one of the minor prophets everybody likes, and that's the book of Jonah. Um, And Jonah is, there's not really a a message to everyone about coming judgment. Um, There is the message in there, but we like Jonah because it's, it's more biographical it's talking about a prophet having a problem with what God was about to do, that he was going to, to pronounce impending judgment so that the people would repent. And Jonah knew then God would forgive and those dirty rascals would not get what was coming to him. And so Jonah didn't want to do that. And we like Jonah because Jonah ran away from God. And sometimes we like to run away from God. Well, the second most popular book of the minor prophets would be Habakkuk for much the same reason because it's very biographical. Habakkuk has a problem with what's going on in the world, 
And when God tells him what he's going to do in answer to that, then he has a problem with God uh, because he doesn't like what God's going to do. And so we can, again, identify pretty readily with Habakkuk because he's a man who's asking questions and, he, and he's unhappy with life and with, with what God is doing. And, it, and it's not so much a big book of judgment, though that is here as well, but it's more of a man who's just questioning God. We all, at one time or another in our life, question God. And there are principally two questions that we ask of God. How long and why? Those are pretty much every question, every problem we have with God, disappointment, frustrations, even anger that we might have with God, um, center around those two questions. How much longer and why? And this book starts with how much longer? And then when God answers that question, he says, why? In fact, he's going to say why three times. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor? And then why are you silent? Then verse 14, why have you made men like the fish of the sea? So why, why, why? Two questions we ask. How much longer, O Lord, and why? Now, I guess the older we get, the less inclined we are to ask the first of those two questions. How much longer, Lord? Because we know it's not going to be much longer, right? Psalmist says we've been given 70 years on average. And some of you have already gone beyond that seven, so you should not ever be asking that question. How much longer? But when you're young, and so I take it that Habakkuk maybe was on the younger side of the equation, he's saying, how much longer? It seems to be the question, how much longer has at its heart the problem of, it appears many times, that God is doing nothing. And we wonder why. Is it because of our prayers? Is it because of sin in our lives? Is it because God doesn't care? Is He even hearing us? We want, it, we want it to end. And we're asking God why it doesn't end. There are a lot of different things that can prompt that question. How much longer? For Habakkuk, it was just the world that he was living in. Full of violence and corruption and evil. People taking advantage of each other. He says here, violence in verse 2, verse 3, iniquity, wickedness, destruction, violence, strife, contention. Verse 4, the law is ignored, justice is never upheld, the wicked surround the righteous, and justice comes out perverted. He's frustrated, and he's tired, and he wants it to come to an end. Had a lawyer that here in the church, um, tell me one time, he's not um, here in the church anymore, but he got out of the legal profession because he said, I went into it because I believed in justice. And then I discovered there is no justice in the justice system. And so he got out of it. How long, oh Lord? I had another lawyer tell me one time that all the district and federal 
judges in a major city here in Texas, they're all paid and bought, every one of them. And he says, every one of them is corrupt. And that he was part of a major law firm, and he says, we do everything we can to avoid ever having to go to court in that city. Because every judge is on the take. We actually have it pretty good compared to a lot of countries, don't we? I mean, you think about the countries that are called the most corrupt. In the United States, it doesn't come to mind. Haiti, Mexico, some of the African countries are known as being the most corrupt on the planet. They would have been nations, they are nations like what Habakkuk was talking about in his own day. And when you live in the midst of that, everyone's on the take, everyone wants to be bribed, you have no guarantee of justice whatsoever. And one of the most fundamental cravings in every human heart is the craving for justice. And you have no hope of ever seeing it. You wonder how much longer. So sometimes we have the cry, how long, O Lord, because of just the corrupt world that we live in. But sometimes it's because of personal suffering, all kinds of things. Disease, sickness, finances, someone we love that's not walking with God and we wonder how much longer before they'll come back to the Lord. Someone in our life that torments us and we have no relief from them. Sometimes there's just open persecution. Sometimes it's the suffering of others that causes us to cry out, how much longer, O Lord? We can't bear to see our children suffering or people we love suffering. Sometimes we're under the discipline of God and we're asking, Lord, how much longer? I know I made a choice. I know I deserve the discipline, but God, when is it going to come to an end? And as I was thinking on this question, how long, O Lord, um, I got out my concordance again and I looked at that how many times that occurs in the Bible, because I knew it it had to be other places. And actually, the person who asked that question the most is God. There are so many passages in the Bible where God says, how much longer? But where it's not God asking the question, um, the Psalms is full of how long, O Lord? Psalm 6, Psalm 13 in particular, Um, Psalm 35, 74, 80, 89, 90, 94, filled with how much longer, O Lord. So it's very common for us to ask that question. We are not alone when we ask that. Maybe the passage of how long, O Lord, that most readily comes to mind for us is in Revelation chapter 6, where the seals are being broken. And it says, The fifth seal was broken, and I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So all these martyrs in heaven, And they have lost their lives, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of them, because of the testimony of Jesus. How much longer, O Lord, 
So in heaven, people that are in heaven are asking the question, how much longer, O Lord? So that comforts me a little bit. That is not just a question we ask here on earth. But this passage really spoke to me. In Zechariah, one of those minor prophets that we almost never read, they're called the white pages in our Bible because they always stay white. Um, Zechariah chapter 1, in verse 12, says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which you have have been indignant with these 70 years. You know who the angel of the Lord is? That's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is Jesus in the Old Testament, before he took on humanity. This is the Son of God. And in heaven, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, is saying to the Lord of hosts, God the Father, how much longer, Lord? So we're in pretty good company when we say, how much longer, Lord? The martyrs in heaven are asking, how much longer, Lord? And even Jesus has asked God the Father, Lord, how much longer? That blesses my heart. So why would Jesus ask that question? Why do we ask that question? We ask it not just because it appears that God is inactive, but obviously because we are truly grieved over what's going on, and we want it to stop. Well, why do we grieve? In part, because of the heart of God, which is our heart, if we are in Christ. And God does not look on evil and smile. He is not indifferent, and he is not inactive, but he does wait. And even Jesus, and all it was was a 70-year time of discipline for Israel. That's not very long. And even Jesus, the angel of the Lord, at the end of that 70 years is saying, how much longer, O Lord? And the Lord answered and said, the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. And so he goes on to say that He's not forgotten Israel, and that 70 years of being upset with Israel is coming to an end, and he's going to pour out his wrath on the nations that have troubled Israel. How long? It's a good question. God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for asking it. In fact, he answers it, and there's no rebuke. And the answer is not what Habakkuk was at all expecting, and it troubles him. How long, O Lord? 
Will I call for help and you will not hear? And God was hearing. But God was not quick to respond. And then when he does respond, you've got to be kidding, Lord. Before reading God's answers, I want to answer, I want us to keep in mind what the Lord said to Peter through Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 8 and 9. But, I, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sometimes God seems to delay because God is not wanting any to perish and for all to come to repentance. So then God answers in verse 5, and his, his answer goes through to verse 11. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. And then he tells him, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now we don't know anything about the Chaldeans. So God's going to tell us in these next verses about the Chaldeans. Habakkuk didn't need to know. But what God does do in recounting who the Chaldeans are and what they're capable of, it tells Habakkuk, I know what these people are like. I'm not, don't think I'm ignorant of this. Don't think I've selected the wrong instrument to bring about my will. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs, they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter at the, to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. These are a bad people. The Chaldeans were... Um, really identified with the Babylonians. And it was the next major empire to come, up, come into being after the Assyrians. And the Lord gave the generalities of it. They are a fierce, impetuous people whose authority originates with themselves. They are proud and they are ruthless. He didn't get into a lot of the specifics. In the next section, when, when, when Bacchic responds to what God is saying, he says... Look at just some of the references that he makes in here, and, and, and we don't understand exactly what he's talking about, but, but there's a history behind what he's saying. Look, just skipping down to verse 14. Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. What's he talking about? He's speaking literally. See, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, saw something that the Assyrians had done with their captives, and they incorporated it into their abuse of their victims. And what the Assyrians did, they were called the fishermen by their enemies. Because when they came and took a nation captive, they would haul them off to another land to repopulate, and they would hook them with fishing hooks, and then string all the captives together and march them. And if anybody fell, 
then everybody had the flesh ripped out of them. And so they'd put the hooks in their faces, in their lips, in their shoulders, in their arms, and said, march. And literally, chunks of flesh were being ripped out of people as they marched until they were just bled out. And then they'd kick them off to the side of the road, and they'd rehook everybody else and say, march. These were evil people. And the Babylonians, when they came into power, said, we kind of like that. And they adopted it for themselves. And when God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Habakkuk knew exactly what, they, what is coming to them. And he's going, you've got to be kidding. Before getting to that, I don't want to skip over verse 7. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. There is nothing more terrifying than to be with people who have no fear of God. And all of their justice and all of their authority is self-derived. More and more our nation is becoming like that. Where our rulers, our authorities are increasingly moving away from a fear of God and they have no basis in law or in, in, in moral um, um, standards for the things that they are doing. It is totally self-originating authority. And it is scary. One of the ways we see that is where people are not only disregarding um, the word of God and the laws of the land and our constitution, they even disregard basic science. We're seeing that now with sexuality. And people with no basis for anything that they're saying, saying that gender and sexuality is fluid. And whatever you decide, that is what you are. Man, I tell you, I wish height was that way. <laughs> really, I mean, can I just decide that I'm gonna be six feet tall? and say, well, I feel six feet tall, so I want you to treat me like I'm six feet tall today. It makes no sense whatsoever. Basic biology has no authority any longer, much less scripture or the laws of our land. It is a self-derived authority. And when that's the case, people are capable of anything. Their justice and their authority originates with themselves. Their strength is their God, verse 11. Because they can do it is all that matters. Habakkuk goes, it can't be. It can't be, God, that you're going to use them. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Now, break that down with me. Are you not from everlasting? That means, God, you are all wise. See, if you're from everlasting, there's nothing you don't know. And that's what he's trying to say. You are too wise to use these people. Really? Oh, Lord, that means you are sovereign. You are in control. So this isn't, this, you don't let things happen by just accident. You are too wise and you are too much in control, my Holy One. 
and you're holy. How can you use the unholy to accomplish your purposes? And if there's ever an unholy people, it's them. And so his theology is correct. God is all wise. God is in control. And God is holy. And he is our God. My God. This is a personal relationship. And so everything he's saying about God, four things here. He is all wise. He is in absolute control. He is totally holy. And he is our personal God. All of that is true. Good theology. Check plus. A plus. We will not die. Bad application. Really? He is bewildered by what he knows to be true of God and now what he hears that God is going to do. It doesn't make sense. He is all wise and this doesn't make sense. It doesn't look like he's in control, but he's the all-sovereign God. It, doesn't, it seems to contradict his holiness that he would use unholy people. Oh, man. I'm, I'm glad passages like this are in the Bible. This is an honest man whose theology is right, and he is he's in a crisis of faith now. How can God allow this to happen? Not just allow it, how can God be in control of this? That he's using these people of all people. And so the first question was the problem of apparent inactivity of God. And this is the problem of the apparent excessive response of God. The extreme response of God. Excessive punishment. We read the Old Testament and we see God commanding for lack of a better word, it's a word that none of us like, especially to apply to a scripture, but we, we see God commanding the extinction of a whole people, genocide. That is tough. And I'm glad we don't have to defend God. But boy, it sure makes a problem. And I read one writer this week, and he, was, and he said, you know, isn't it an amazing thing to think about that when God told Saul, wipe out the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child, wipe them out. And Saul saved one. And when Samuel showed up, he was not concerned, not disturbed by God's command for genocide. Samuel was disturbed because of the disobedience of Saul. And the author's point is, we have no understanding of how God views sin and the big deal it is. He is a holy God, and he is all wise, and he is in control of everything that happens in this world, and he is our God. He is personal, he loves us, and he is absolutely committed to us. But if you think that you're going to go through this life and not die, you're wrong. If you think that we can go through this life even as Christians, where nothing will separate us from the love of God, and yet still not come under the hand of God's discipline to the point of death, you're wrong. See, it is a, a wrong grace that says that because we are in Christ, 
We will never be disciplined to the point of death. We will not die. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about the five different times that Israel tested God. And in each time, people were put to death. And then he makes his application and he says, take heed lest you think you stand, lest you also fall. What do you believe that God won't do? It's a hard question. And we all face it. Will God let a child die that you're praying for? Sometimes he does. Will God let a person get cancer and not recover? Sometimes he does. Will God let good people go hungry? Sometimes he does. Will he let a marriage, children, job go bad? Yes. Does he allow economies to crash? People to lose their jobs? Yes. Does he allow his children to be persecuted, even unto death? Yes. Will God allow his children to make bad choices that they will suffer from for the rest of their lives? Yes. Will God allow us to reap what we've sown? Yes. You see, in all of us is the idea that because God so loves us that he is going to keep us from all the bad things. Just like Habakkuk thought. We know on the one hand we deserve God's discipline. But do we deserve this? It seems too extreme. It seems over the top. But he's a just God. And he is from everlasting. He sees the whole picture. And this is one of the hardest areas to trust God because we look at things and we don't see the whole picture and we aren't all wise. And there are many times it seems that God is being extreme. But he can't be because he is just. We know that God will do whatever it takes to grow us and to purify us and to conform us to the image of Christ. God will use even death to bring others into life. We must be careful about what we think God will never do. It is true, and we take great comfort in this, that God will never leave us or forsake us. He will never deny us. He will never let anything separate us from his love. He will never fail us. But neither will he fail to discipline us 
because we are his children. He will not fail to complete the work that he has begun in each of us. And he will not fail to be glorified in us and in this world. He is a good God. And he is to be feared. We will not die. That is a mistake. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. And those two are true, those are both true statements. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked are swallowed up, when they swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net and gather them in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? And then Habakkuk is going to say, I've just mouthed off to God. And he has. And he expects that God is going to rebuke him for being so belligerent, so arrogant, so indignant with God. So chapter 2, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. There are honest questions, but there's also some anger behind them. And he expects for God to reprove him. We'll get to that next Sunday. But I would just encourage us. I don't believe there's anything wrong with those two questions. How long, O oh Lord? And why? And we're going to see in this next chapter, God is not going to rebuke him for asking those questions. If those questions are already in your heart, you think God knows that? He does. He is from everlasting. He knows everything. He certainly knows our hearts. I would encourage you not to be afraid to live honestly before God. Our faith can withstand it. There's a lot of religions that can't ask the hard questions because they can't stand the answer. We are not among those people. We are encouraged to ask the hard questions. And God doesn't turn away from us in anger when we ask them. He knows how difficult this life is. And I believe we are encouraged to live honestly before the Lord. And when we're asking the question, how long? To know that even Jesus himself has asked that question of the Father. And I am so glad to know that. When we ask why... God already knows the anger in our heart. 
And it's only in asking the question and going before God with the question that we're going to know the comforting grace of God. But the sad thing is when people act like they aren't asking these questions. Or they never go to God with them. And so they never hear what God wants to say in response to the whys and the how longs. So I would just encourage you. Let God know what's on your heart. And you will hear God answer your questions. It may take longer than you think. But God is not put off by your questions. He wants us to ask, and he will answer. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I don't know why this passage has just stirred my heart so much. Except, God, I, just, I know that we all live in, a, in this broken world. And at some level, at some time, we all are asking the same questions, God. And I truly thank you, God, that you are not put off by us asking them or even having these questions. And that we can ask. And that you do hear us. You don't always answer as quickly as we'd like. But there is no question, oh God, that you hear us. Thank you that you are from everlasting, oh God. You are wise. That you are Lord. You are sovereign, that you are holy, and you are our God. And Lord, better to come to you, I believe, and ask you these questions that disturb us than to live with an authority and justice that is derived from ourselves. The very asking of these questions recognizes, God, that there is an authority higher than us. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus that you would sustain us, answer the questions, Lord, in your due time, and that we would be willing to hear and to accept all that you say. In Jesus' name, amen.